0: Welcome to the Rise Up podcast, the podcast all about empowering women's careers, hosted by me, Susan Dwyer. Each week, I share insights with you from women with different backgrounds, experiences and learnings. We discuss career defining moments that led them to where they are today, giving you a unique insight into what actually goes on behind the scenes. Get ready for some candid conversations about leadership, entrepreneurship, failure, confidence and more week I am so excited to be joined by Margot Slattery. Margot is an incredible role model for so many people including myself. She is the global head of diversity inclusion and belonging at ISS and I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. Margot Slattery welcome to the Rise Up podcast we're very happy to have you here. Wonderful to be here (laughs) thank you Susan. So to give everybody a little bit of context and to kick things off, the very first time I ever heard you speak really was a couple of years ago in the Marca Hotel. There was an Image Magazine uh, event. I think it was a Melanie Morris who yeah, was the yeah, moderator. Yeah. And I remember you telling your story. And first of all, I remember being in absolute stitches because you were telling so many funny stories just about your own personal journey And I also remember just feeling really inspired having listened to about your career and about your life in general. Um, And it's funny what they say, like, you know, you never remember what people say, but you do remember how they make you feel. So you definitely made your mark um, on me that day. And when I set up a podcast, I was like, Margot Slattery, she's, she's on, she's top of my list. So thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you. So... Let's dive in. I want to go back to the beginning. Growing up in rural Ireland, it's funny, my mum's called Margot and she's also from Limerick. Oh wow, small <laughs> world! But growing up on a farm in what, the 1980s?
1: Yeah, so going to school in
0: the 80s, finished school about 85. In rural Ireland. Um, tell us a little bit about your, what your childhood was like and how that has shaped you.
1: Yeah. And thank you. Thank you. And I'll try to give you the short version of long story. <laughs> I suppose, you know, you could kind of get into that mystical thing and think it's all wonderful. And in many ways it was versus, you know, other people in other parts of the world. I grew up with both parents and I was definitely a loved child. And, you know, as in a kid that parents. Um, give a lot of love to, um, my parents were farming. Um, my mum had had a previous career prior to having to give up her job as you did in the day. Uh, my mum had been in hotel management. And so, uh, after giving up work, she stayed at home with my dad and they, they were farming together, um, in a uh, near a town called Brough in County Limerick. Um, I went to the local national school and the local secondary school. And I think my secondary school was quite influential, which I'll tell you about in a minute. And growing up at home, my family consisted of mum and dad. And then I have a brother who's two years younger than me and a sister who's seven years younger, which is a gift now. But when I was younger, she was a <laughs> pesky, uh, pesky little sister. Um, and, uh, you know, I think probably in the early years, a fairly standard, kind of life I wouldn't say that I was highly sensitized to all the things that were going on around me and probably enjoyed a huge amount of freedom mm. versus today's kids because we were forever off out on bikes and you know I was looking at something the weekend and it was about someone being in a rally chopper and I remember I was having rally choppers and you'd throw your bike anywhere and be gone out for hours <laughs> and your mother would never know where you were um, but you know I think the second half of that sort of you know as I moved into teenage years Things, you know, that really kind of um, began to influence me, first of all, were my school, my secondary school. And it was a school run by a French order called the FCJs. Um, and I've always had a love of everything French, and I think it probably started there. And it was a school run by the most amazing bunch of women, group of women, the faithful companions of Jesus. They were a French order, and I would call them very progressive, very modern. And I felt very lucky because we went to it was a boarding school and a day pupil school. And I was because we lived so near. I was a day pupil, yeah. um, and you know it was just a great fun kind of school with very progressive um, leaders, really there. And it started in me a great love of everything from public speaking to public service and a a real sense of putting yourself forward because that was that was how we were kind of thought yeah and we had amazing uh principals and you know very very impressive women who were leaders really um and then I suppose the juxtaposition of that was that again parents in home you know nothing really terrible happening there or anything but I would say my parents were very constrained by the the challenges of the time, you know, it was hard in rural Ireland in the 70s when I was a kid mm-hmm. um, trying to bring up a family and farming was 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 hard mm-hmm. um, finances and sort of all those were always challenges. And um also I would say my parents were very um you know, they were very much in the parish. They were, they were. you know, my mum was involved in the church, in, in the Catholic church, and very bound by kind of some of the constraints of the time. So I found as I began to sort of emerge as a young person, I was dealing with a kind of a time and a community that was very much in a time warp of the valley of squinting windows and what rural Ireland was like. Mm-hmm. I was going to a school that was definitely causing me to think. Um, I was a voracious reader. I was reading, you know, well beyond my age group from a very uh, young age. I was at the kind of books that were for 17-year-olds when I was about 12. Um And probably a lot of that because I used to spend most weekends with my grandmother, my mum's mum, who was widowed and who lived in her own. So I was kind of minding granny but reading all weekend. And uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Um So, you know, I think a really great start But challenging and I certainly came to that latter part of my life knowing that I was a bit different and understanding I was different but not really understanding why.
0: And was there like a fear with that growing up in that kind of Catholic or religious environment of being different?
1: Oh most definitely. I mean the examples you got certainly when I was going to school um, you know things like for instance um, it was a young girl who, who, who lost her life really. At, in Longford, um, who was having a baby at a crossroads? I mean, you know that was a, that was something we we experienced in the sense of that was what was in the media um, having a baby, and it was all a big, you know, hush hush, you the carry baby scenario going on. There was a lovely woman there, Joanne, who was being really put under huge pressure by the media and the police because of again having had a baby. Um, all the stories we knew of was, you know. Be don't get pregnant, don't have a baby. It's really Mm. kind of the not done thing. Um, And you needed to conform to everything. And I suppose one of the things that really was a strong influence on me as well was when I was quite young, I was at my grand's house with my mom and my mom came in and my brother and sister and I were, you know, messing about playing. We were kind of hiding or something. And I heard my mom tell my grandmother that a neighbor had taken his own life and the The reason why was because he was a gay man. Now, the language they use was more couched yeah. in, in language of the time. But what it taught me was to be different and to stand out it was, was dangerous. Yeah. And I think that formed for me a kind of a big guardrail about everything that came for the next 10, 20 years of my life. Because I was like, you need to really be careful about, you know, what you tell and what you don't tell. And you cover up certain things and you, you're you not you don't expose yourself.
0: Wow And so do you think Like Were you dying to get out of Ireland As a young
1: person Absolutely Yeah Absolutely I remember uh, Going to I went to college in Galway To begin with I, I, I trained as a chef Actually first day And uh there's lots of stories around that, but it was, it was great. And, uh, I remember sort of having done my, my college training and I got an opportunity to go work in London. And I remember going to Shannon airport the first time I was 20, 21 or something. And I was like, going, get me out of here. <laughs> I, I never want to come back. Really? I was, yeah. I'm, I'm even surprised. I surprised myself that I ever came back here. Did Because that was not the intention.
0: Why did you come back?
1: Um, around ninety ninety one. I came back for a short while. I'd been in London for a number of years. I'd gone in since, since about 88. Um, and I came back to kind of just kind of get a bit of money and regroup okay. and, you know, get ready for the next phase, which was either going to the US or Australia. Um, I was working and living in Dublin for a while and, uh, somehow I kind of, I, I got into society and found myself here and, I didn't take that next step straight away, and it was uh-huh. always kind of I'll do that next year or the year after, and
0: okay, okay, ended up staying. <laughs> and you mentioned there, um, you started your career off as a chef, yes. Why, what made you pick that profession and what did you learn from that experience?
1: Yeah, so the reason I, I mean, number of reasons that I chose it. And again, try to give you the shortened version. I suppose first and foremost, my mom had been in the hotel business and I grew up with the the wonderful stories of my mom's adventures in the hotel industry. (sighs) My mom had lots of friends who were in that industry. And um, we kind of knew people and lots of sort of, you know, uh, you'd go to someone's house and you'd hear about the days when they were all together in hotels, et cetera. So I suppose it had an attractiveness in, in that sense. First of all, secondly, my mom and her mother and sisters were amazing cooks and they love food and, and my dad actually as well. So, you know, I came from a house where food was really a big thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, from everything from going down to Malu and going to visiting and I wouldn't say we were eating out in restaurants all the time but we ate fantastic it food was a big part of it was know. a big part food and laterally maybe wine were a big part of our family life so I kind of respected that and thought it was really great mm-hmm. and I was interested and in the food industry was beginning to kind of the you know we were getting the gens of kind of having exciting times about food so I thought this would be an interesting career because I loved food and cooking and making nice food for people
0: and how did, uh, what? how long did that last for? Why did you
1: um, stop that? And, and really, I suppose, again, goes back to one of the reasons for choosing and then the change. Um, I, I, w- I went into the industry as well because I didn't probably know what else to do. Mm-hmm. And having left the wonderful school I went to, and it was great. One thing that it wasn't so good, it was maybe helping me and understand the next stage of my career. And I came out of school um, having done my leave insert and, and I got marketing and somewhere in Limerick, I got this chef's course, And one or two other things. And I, and like, I wouldn't say we had great career guidance. And particularly Mm -hmm. in those days, you were kind of go out and play basketball or go to career guidance. We went to play basketball most of the time. Um, and so I, 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 I really loved my career in the food services industry in that way, but I couldn't see a sort of a long term projection particularly in the chef role because all the role models of females I saw at that time were sort of stuck in kitchens as cooks or in schools or in you know food service business and I, I wanted something different.
0: Okay okay and did you have many role models like at that point in your life where you were like aspiring to be or looking up to or did you find there was a lack of role models available to you?
1: I think there was a lack of role models in, in Ireland. I mean, probably, you know, my, my mom and my grandmother, as I think back, were, pre- and my grandmother was pretty amazing. You know, she'd three young babies at 30 something yeah, and my mom was only a year old and my, my grandfather died. And, uh, my grandmother went on to kind of farm her own land and be an amazing woman. So people like her and, and probably the women that I saw in my rural community who, despite many challenges, really found their way. Um, You know, and again, I look back in retrospect, everything from people who ran the ICA and everything, you know, at the time I probably didn't regard yeah, it, but I think yeah. now they were Looking trailblazers. Like. Um, and then people like you know Marga and Quinn and many Irish female politicians, Gemma Hussey, and many more mm-hmm. um Francis, and then you know people like Mary Robinson and that sort of thing who began to sort of really challenge things, and I think things like women 's Council and various other organizations who kind of challenged the norms here, but growing up when I was younger, there weren't so many, mm-hmm. and probably I look more internationally to, you know, female leaders like Golda Meir, people who were in India, you know, many other parts of the world. But again, it was a small group.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so you are, I suppose, you're one of Ireland's most high profile gay chief executives, if not the most. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to coming out in your personal life? But also at work, but like, was that at the same time or how did that all happen? Yeah,
1: um, well, you know, it was a long journey, I would say that. Um, and work was most definitely the, the the sort of catalyst that helped to make that happen. If it had been up to me at certain stages of my life and, and having told you now the sort of the reasons why I was nervous, um I, I would have probably stayed more in the closet, but, um, as I worked and I worked in a company called Sodexo, a French company. Um, and you know, I had that sort of challenge of do I stay in the closet or do I not? And I was in a chief executive role for a couple of years. And there was a lot of sort of movement and change around civil partnership and obviously the aspiration for civil marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was involved for a long, long time in my life. I'd been involved in NGOs from ones called lot lesbians organized together to I was involved in supporting outhouse and then various other bits and pieces. And I got involved with Glenn. And I suppose there comes that stage in your life where you were either sitting in the fence you you want to be part of the change and and you kind of have to have to step up. So um, you know, I was very lucky that with Glenn, you know, as we moved in the whole debate around marriage equality, Glenn needed people like me to be able to step forward. So I suppose there was a push in that way to have to. You're either um, doing it or you're not.
0: Like, were you actually asked? Like you- yes,
1: um, I was asked to, to do something, in the, uh, an op-ed in the in Sunday Independent, and there was going to be okay, okay. publications. So, you know, was I happy to do that? But I'd also had the experience through work um, with Sedexo. Sodexo started its D&I Council for the UK and Ireland, which, to be fair to Sodexo, was done when nobody else was doing this. I mean, really we were some of the first people doing this in Ireland and uh, I represented the Irish business. And, you know, I went to D&I council meetings and groups and I was going to a lot of things in the UK and I was finding I was in a community with people where this was entirely comfortable. We were talking about ethnicity, sexual orientation, mm. whatever it was, mental health, et cetera. And I was going, why am I so worried about this? And the truth, Susan, was that, I was telling lots of people little tidbits of my life. So lots of people probably knew. Yeah. So when I finally did come out, um, you know, people weren't uh, weren't shocked. The hardest part was telling my mom. My dad was ill at the time. uh, My dad had Alzheimer's and my mom wasn't in great health either. And I finally had to tell my mom. And that was probably the hardest part. And I knew I had to tell her because, you know. I couldn't have something in the Sunday papers without her understanding and knowing. And And that was hard.
0: What was her reaction?
1: She was wonderful. Um, You know, I took all night to tell her I remember being at home. Um, You may have heard me tell that before. And I was kind of like a bottle. I was at the best side of the of a bottle of wine. (laughs) And she kind of said to me, I'm quite tired, I want to go to bed. You said you wanted to tell me, so what do you need to tell me? Because um, I'd sat through the whole of the Late Late Show with her and uh, I told her and she kind of said, I've known that for years. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, whew, yeah. And and But the most amazing thing was that, you know, my mum was my mum and she was a loving parent and mm-hmm. she's she she straight away sort of assured me nothing was changed and nothing mm-hmm. was different. She was probably a little more concerned about what people might think and that yeah. was... That was the nature of things.
0: I suppose any mum just wants to protect their their yeah. child. That's the Yeah, nature of and who so. was I
1: then going to tell? Because she wanted to understand the trajectory of that conversation and, and, and the implications and, you know, who was going to know so she would know.
0: And when you, after you came out and worked, like, did you just feel like so much like yourself? Like, it must have been a huge change internally for you being being oh. able to show up as your authentic self and work it's the
1: most amazing thing and i would say to anybody who's covering anything about themselves to be free is the most fantastic thing in the world yeah. because you know you take away all the power that anybody can have over you first and foremost secondly you own your own power because then suddenly you can be really really free about what you say um, and then, and how I mean that is that, you know, if we're all having a conversation as we all do, you know, on a coffee in a Monday morning or something, you can be honest about who you were with and where you were. Because prior to that, I was careful about everything I said. That must have been so difficult. Oh, it's so difficult. I mean, there's an exercise people often do in the D&I world where, you know, get somebody to talk about their weekend and don't mention the gender or don't talk, you know, maybe about their religion or whatever you're covering. It really stymizes your conversation. Yeah,
0: wow. And especially today with social media, like, I don't know how you'd manage to live a double. Yeah.
1: Well, maybe thank God that there wasn't you, so much yeah, social media. Yeah, exactly. Or at least then you wouldn't be on social media because people who are hiding something are, are usually, you'd, you know, yeah. being very careful about what they're doing, say.
0: And what would you say to someone who mightn't feel like they very safe in their work or maybe just not safe enough or you know finding it difficult to have that conversation like do you have any advice for someone who's struggling with that?
1: Well probably lots in that uh, you know I've come across it in so many ways and so many times and it's all around the different facets of Of all of our diversity, so somebody may be not feeling comfortable to talk about their religion, their race, their ethnicity, a disability, their sexual orientation, maybe something that's happening from a home life, a mental health issue, whatever. I think everybody has their journey and that word's often used and sometimes perhaps abused, but everybody has to find their own way in these things. Mm. Um And, you know, we all have to find our own time and I'm still a very strong believer. I would never want to push anybody and I would want people to find their own way in their own yeah. time. However, I think there is a kind of a push and pull piece where, you know, the truth is that many of the environments we think are not so good are actually okay And I've met more people in my life who are positive than I've met negative people. And 99% of the time, even the people I think are maybe going to be a little bit, you know, less enthusiastic turn out to be great. And one of the things about maybe certainly from a sexual orientation type of thing is that, you know, every day when I meet people and particularly new people, I come out because, you know, people will say things, even though you think they should know. And if they've gone online and looked at you, they'll probably put two and two (laughs) together very quickly. But, you know, people will say things like, are you married? And you say, yeah, I am. And then they go, and what's your husband do? That happens so often. Mm -hmm. And then you go say, well, I don't have a husband. So I've now learned very quickly to say things like I have a wife. So it's really clear. Yeah. Yeah. I'd before be saying things like, oh, I have a partner (laughs) and then they go, oh, what's your partner doing? And you you go down. But, you know, you have to do that every day. So Mm -hmm. you become very used to doing that. But the truth is most people are very, very warm and you'll be surprised that um, somebody might say, oh, well, you know, that's my cousin or that's my niece or that's my brother or whatever. And uh, people relate to you.
0: And I feel like when you're vulnerable and when you're, Open, like that's how you connect with people. Yeah, yeah. That's what people. I mean,
1: and 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 there are things that you know you come. It takes time, like. I'm I'm certainly slightly dyslexic, and I would be um, I would struggle a bit there. And I found it almost harder to tell people I'm dyslexic than to say I'm gay. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting, you know. We we have different things at different times in our
0: lives. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And you mentioned um your wife. Your wife's name Sarah, yeah. Yeah,
1: Sarah Barry. So the
0: 2015 the marriage referendum. What tell us about what that was like or what that meant to you?
1: Well, it was probably the most amazing time of both of our lives we'd had a civil partnership in 2014 so we met in 2011 and I think, you know, we were both in our early 40s and we knew that this was this was good. Mm-hmm. Um, So we, we decided to cement things in, in 2014 and we had a fantastic day in 2014 oh. having our civil partnership in Carrick and Chandler and County Leitrim.
0: I remember my auntie telling yeah, me. Yeah. She, said, was, she it, said it was an amazing it day. It was a
1: fantastic day. And we did it in a place called The, the Dock, which is an art centre and it's a fantastic venue in Carrick. And we did that because we wanted to do something very public because we wanted to have a sort of a, you know, public statement of of our intent and we're part of a community and it's part of what we are um so having done that we we were pretty sure that when we heard about you know and we knew obviously about the whole fight for marriage equality that that was something we would want to do mm-hmm. um and being part and involved with glenn then i was super supportive as well so i was on the board of glenn and, and laterally went on to become uh the co-chair of Glen and uh I think that marriage equality was the most amazing time, I think, in Ireland. You know, when I think of now, my age, and I think back, wow, to see this country and to see people of all ages and to see the campaign and the energy. And for me, it was a watershed moment because we went from being such a restricted and kind of sometimes... Uh, a a country and a people who are strangling with our emotions and struggling rather with our emotions to kind of really being up front and out and clear. And, you know, people went beyond their comfort zone a lot. And uh, I think, you know, things like from, you know, ring your granny to vote, to come home to vote. And the young people in our country were just fantastic. People at all ages were fantastic. So like, I know your aunt, your aunt was out
0: campaigning
1: every night. She and her partner were, you know, amazing. Now wife uh, were amazing and so many other people and the amount of people who went out and campaigned and stepped outside their comfort zone Just a
0: feeling of like everyone coming together and pulling together yeah it was
1: kind of a magic moment and if you remember Dublin Castle you know because if you look at that gaze gaze video even online on YouTube it brings it all back and it was just amazing and for 60 something percent of the country to vote Mm -hmm. yes was was pretty stunning
0: so in terms of your career yes um, you started off as a chef, you have worked your way up to chief executive level in a number of different companies. Has there been any traits or superpowers or like skills that you put it down to that has helped you progress over the years?
1: Yeah, I think that, I think there definitely has. I was having a conversation with a niece of ours the other night and she's young and and starting out in her career and we were talking about that there isn't just one way, you know. Um, I think first and foremost, uh, my parents, you know, with my parents and in my family, I grew up to have a, a great, a lot, an ability to be able to be very confident. And, you know, my parents really helped me about being able to be open and be yourself and in that sense of confidence and be comfortable chatting away with people. So that was a great start. Going to school with the FCJs, you know, it was a great place to learn to do Support public service events, things that were happening, public speaking, did speech and drama and all those things in school. Um, you know, and and my school gave us all a sense of confidence as well. So I think those confidence building steps. And of course, just like everybody else, um, you know, I struggle sometimes, but yeah, did it help me to feel able to do that? I think that was one. I think, um, I'm very resilient and I think resilience is fantastic. Um, and I feel blessed that I, I have a strong sense of resilience. I can't say where that came from. I probably think probably family as well. I was going
0: to ask, does that come naturally or?
1: You build it up over the years, but I would say I, I, I've, I've been lucky to have a strong sense of resilience. And when I bless, you know, when I feel blessed, it's, it's one of the things that helps me sort of, um, in realization of that, um, because when I get knockbacks, I'm pretty good to get back up again. Mm. Um, and very little, uh, you know, gets me, gets me down that I can't find my way forward. So I suppose that's maybe good mental health as well. Yeah. You know, and I, I do feel lucky with that because I know not everybody has that and I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that way. And then I think, you know, um, I had a strong sense of a vision that maybe in my mid twenties. So when I joined a company called Gardener Merchant, which laterally became SEDEXO, and I joined in a very junior management role, I knew I wanted to kind of be the CEO of that company. So I saw my vision of what I wanted to be, and that helps a lot. So when you kind of know where you want to go, I struggled probably until my mid-20s. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. And that's what I was relating to our niece the other night. I was saying, you know, we don't all come out at 18 knowing what that is. Mm. And I think there's lots of us who are kind of spending a couple of years going – I did that college course or I did this and I don't think anything I've ever done has been bad but it didn't necessarily you know wasn't the one that took me to where I am now.
0: Mm-hmm. It's funny because I think there is this expectation on us to always I mean you know it comes with different ages I know when you hit 30 it's like you know you should know exactly what you want or and it's like it's just a, like you said that word journey but like it does change sometimes, and being adaptable is important as well. Absolutely,
1: and I think that adaptability that you talk about is incredibly important, and to be able to listen to yourself. Mm. Because also for me, you know, I've done I did that CEO, CEO role until around twenty eighteen, twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, and I knew after probably after marriage equality in twenty fifteen that I wanted to change and do something yeah. different, because I had this sense of I want to do something the next phase of my life. And it's to be able to listen to yourself and to kind of hear the, the stirrings that are happening in yourself. Yeah, intuition. And I don't think any career journey is, is just linear and it's all straight line. You know, I could have gone on and taken the next role maybe in Europe or the U S as a CEO, but
0: I wasn't, that wasn't what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And when you talk about, I I agree, I think resilience is one of the most important things because we all have setbacks. We all have, low points in life um, and it's about I suppose how you react to that Um, but you know some people struggle with that more than others 100% and like are there any kind of examples of challenges or particular low points that you faced in your life and like how did you actually I don't even like the term bounce back because I don't think it always like is that easy. But how did you overcome like, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, many, 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 many. I mean, I think from a career perspective, um, you know, first of all, you get in and you and you go, okay, what's 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 the next step? So that one, as I said, in that sort of 20s. Going, how do I get on this ladder to this career? You know, it's like trying to pull pull away the kind of the veneer and find the truth behind something. And sometimes it's very hidden in organisations. And finding the stairway forward is not easy. Mm. You know, we were chatting earlier on about it's it's like going, do I go left, right, in the middle? You know, how do I how do I find the next one? So that first part was hard because I wasn't sure how to. And if anything, I've concluded now is do something. And one thing leads to another. Yeah. I think, um, you know, be really, really open to opportunities because I was. Um And I started with Gardner Merchant in that junior role. And I kind of knew, OK, I need to go to the next step and the next step. I didn't necessarily see what the final one was. I knew in my mind, the back of my head, what that what I'd like, but I wasn't sure of how to get there. So I think that's important. Then I think, you know, when we think about what comes forward, it's about sort of being, I think, demanding of either organizations and ourselves and saying, you know, what other further education, what training, what learning do I need to do? Um, You know, going back to the resilience being, I think, you know, being demanding of oneself and say, you know, I know there are gaps and I've had to learn that. And that, you know, when we talk about knockbacks, I would have, for instance, gone for roles, not got them and then go why didn't I get that? I was as good as, you know, AB. and then you have to sit and listen and say, all right, give me the feedback. And someone said, well, you know, you're not so strong on this and you're, you need development in yeah. this. Um, I think, you know, one thing that's been super helpful is getting feedback from people. Mm. Um, people say the gift of feedback and sometimes we don't always receive it well, but it is a gift. Um And having friends and mentors and people who've supported me through the years, who've, who've really been, you know, great to tell it to me as it is. And then I think, you know, um, when I think about knockbacks, as I got to the next stages in my career into more senior management and I wanted to get that CEO role, it's then also again, understanding what my skills gaps were Mm -hmm. and having that conversation and being prepared to put in the work Yeah, and being prepared that I hadn't been successful and that you get rejected and you feel rejected and then you have to find... I think it's a bit like sort of, um, I quite like Formula One racing, right? It's just one of those kind of geeky things I like. Really? Yeah. Sunday afternoon <laughs> sometimes. Love it. And I think about the chicanes, you know, you have to kind of go different chicanes and find your yeah. way around. And so it's not always just one path and you kind of have to call someone up and say, what do I do? And maybe go and get lots of advice and, and reset yourself. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, if I move to the, the latter stages, then doing a CEO role, you know, quite often it's a very lonely role because you're in that top position at your level in a country for instance and you're you're the people you can probably talk to are the other people who are in those roles in other organizations you can't talk to your team because it's lonely at the time yeah it is lonely because you you need to be careful about how much you expose about yourself and that and that's probably the time you're the least open about yourself Mm. um and Then you have to have a a strong bunch of people around and surround you with yourself, with with peers who who help you. Um, And maybe the last phase of that was then like I did in in that sort of 2015, 16, 17, haven't done a master's going. What is the next step? Then having again to reset yourself and find your way forward. Mm. Um, And that's important as well. So being able to uh get a a light and to be able to kind of reassess what you might need to do
0: and it's true what you say like sometimes you don't know what the end goal is but just showing up every single day like will build and build and and lead to something and you mentioned mentorship there um and your network has that been a huge part of your career and, and and the growth
1: yeah absolutely um Right, true. People have been so generous. You know, um, I think of when I was in Sodexo, um, very early days, um, our then HR director for the UK and Ireland, a lovely lady called Natalie Bickford, she's with Sanofi now. Natalie was really generous with helping me to kind of understand my level from being a manager into a into leadership role and understanding that I would need to do development. I think about um, a lovely gentleman called Gilles Perrault, who was my mentor and my sponsor in Sodexo, who was in their exec and who helped me. And we did reciprocal mentoring and that was fantastic. I was probably giving him the view of a young woman in yeah, an organization. Yeah, yeah. Um And. Again, people have been the CEOs of Sedexo, who've been amazing mentor supporters and then friends, people like Louise Phelan, Anne O'Leary, and a huge amount of people, uh, my partner Sarah, et cetera. So, and listen, more than I can mention here mm-hmm. who've been amazing supporters. Um, and I think, uh, as, as I go forward now in, in my career with ISS, uh, we have a great CEO, Jakob, and and, and my now line manager, Corinna Revsgard. Again, really, really good because always kind of helping you to, to kind of push yourself as well and, and helping me to step beyond my own comfort zone.
0: Yeah, it's so important. And I think something a lot of us can struggle with from time to time is asking for help. But like... It's, it's such an important part. Absolutely. And you never,
1: you never really are over needing it. Yeah. You know, we all need it all the time and whatever ages we're at, you know, whether it's you, you're in your fifties, like I am now, early fifties, and you're, <laughs> and you're kind of thinking about that next age of your life or you're 20 or whatever, you know, and I've got nieces and nephews at various ages and I love saying to them, you know, go out and ask people. And I certainly try to every time anyone asks for my help to, to to be open, you know, I may not be able to give them the answer they want, but at least to try and help. And I think there's a bit about we all owe that to everybody to and do that. Yeah.
0: And it's like when someone asks me for help or advice, the, like it's an act of vulnerability in itself. And it, I, I always admire people who just make the ask. because yeah. You know, some people don't. And um, so something that we're super passionate about at Rise Up is gender equality yes. and getting more women into leadership. What's your take on on the importance of getting more women into leadership and what do you think needs to be done?
1: Well, I think you know to be fair to Ireland if we take it in the Irish context, we've made great moves mm-hmm. because I think it's important to admire and be be recognized the good things because when I was a young woman really as I've said to you in the beginning there were so little uh, women in, you know, government or public life or CEOs. So big tick a good bit done. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot more to do. And, you know, we're not at 50-50 and yet the world is pretty much 50-50 in the gender. So we don't mirror the world that we see just yet. And yet, you know, if we're 50% of the consumers as women, um, then, you know, we're not we're not reflected in, in business or in, mm-hmm. in life. Um, what do I think we have to do? I think we have to continue to have amazing role models. We need to look at, and, you know, again, you and I chatted before about it, the whole process from somebody's recruitment right through their career. What are we doing to make sure that we give people, you know, a fair a fair go, a fair chance? How do we help people to, um, you know, have an equitable chance as they move forward? So if we think look at things like, you know, gender pay, have we got equal gender pay? Have we got the same jobs? Do we bring everybody to the table in the same way? So do we even recruit in the same way? If you think about Irish society, you know, it's still very made up of cliquey groups who come from. You know, either the same schools, the same societies, we're interested in the same. And we're, we're a small country, you know, it's six million. We're very homogeneous. It's like, you know, we're, we're very white. We're very similar. We like, a lot of people like the same games on a Saturday, the weekend, yeah. the same social circles. So we need to be very careful about that sort of thing. Um, I think we need to think about, you know, what makes the social parlance. Do we really think about the economic circumstances people come from? We probably are going to have a lot of challenge, I think, as we move forward around what is gender, and when we talk about gender balance, mm. you know, it's no longer just uh, binary; it's not just male and female. We have to go wider and deeper in that. So, people who are non-binary, trans women and men, and etc. Um, And then, you know, opportunity for people from minority backgrounds and how we are more encompassing about that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a wider and deeper conversation than we've had. We started off with the kind of binary conversation, just getting women into the next level. But now we need to go deeper and wider and possibly, I think, be better about lifting others. So, you know, we can't pull the ladder up when we all get there.
0: Uh A hundred percent. I speak to a lot of smaller companies with regards to diversity and inclusion, belonging. And they don't have someone like you in the company in in a DE&I position, Um, nor they might not have a lot of budget. Um, Maybe it might fall under HR or it's volunteer-led like 90% of the time. And what I find is that people are kind of scared to kickstart having these difficult conversations, whether it be about race, ethnicity, religion, sexuality, whatever it may be because they don't want to offend anyone or they don't want to say the wrong thing. But like, so there's no conversation being had, um, which is the dangerous thing. So do you have any advice for, for these people on like, how, how do you kickstart having these difficult conversations?
1: Um, It's a great question. And I think, um, you know, the most important thing to do is to not sort of be daunted by the fact that size makes it better. I think, um, Small organizations have the power to do amazing things. And if we look at even startups or many people who start with a small business, they can become some of the most amazing businesses in the world. So I think size is never the determiner of anything. Um, and I, I think of a, of a great example, for instance, in my local area where we live in, in County Leitrim, um, we have a local company called Crossword and it's a, it's a local electrical company and, you know, I've had them do some work with me and there's female electricians as a there's a young man there who's originally come from Ethiopia and they've they've got a wide spectrum and that's because they've begun to think differently about how they do their business and they think about representing the society they see yeah. so I think first and foremost you know if someone's a founder an owner or, or, or a manager a leader just they can be this amazing force of difference because there is no doubt and the great anthropologist margaret mead said you know the only thing that ever changes the world are individuals and people that's that's what really changes the world if you look at big change it's been done by small changes by people bit by bit by bit like go back to our marriage equality or or you know anything around um abortion or changes that we've had you know they've been done by people catalyzing change um, so I think it's first of all looking at yourself and your business and saying you know what can we do here what's the power of the possibility and there is no doubt the words that we speak and how we act so for instance. You know, if you've got somebody in your organization um, who's a little bit different to perhaps the norm of the society you're around, then you can be the person who encourages that person, supports that person just by your words and acts, being maybe open about something like pride or talking about things you know, bring people from different uh, races and minorities, be open and understanding, for instance, all the different religions. It celebrates something that may be a different, a non-Christian feast, yeah. whatever it is, just having an open mind. And I think the more we talk about things, and then most importantly, is what you don't know, ask. Yeah. I do it all the time. I'm now working in diversity, inclusion, belonging, um professionally, and I lead in it globally. And listen, every day I have to ask people, you know, I don't understand all the how, you know, it is perhaps totally celebrated. I'll ask somebody and say, what does that mean and what does that mean for you? I ask questions yeah. and nobody has ever, ever been negative when I've said, help me to understand.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's so, so, so true. And with your own like leadership philosophy and your own leadership style, like you're responsible for I don't know how many thousand people
1: well in in ISS globally now we've around 360,000 people obviously I'm not responsible totally but I am part of that senior team to a degree to, to yeah I'm a senior leader at a VP role to to help and support
0: so how do you get the best out of people like what's your own personal leadership style
1: Yeah well I mean my personal leadership style now you know because it evolves over time would be to be as transparent and open as you can I think to to treat people I've always believed in from day one and this came from my parents to treat people as you want to be treated yourself you know don't don't expect people to do things you wouldn't do yourself and to always sort of believe in the power of somebody that you know we all have the power to be something fantastic so never kind of see the 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 less of people but see the more of people mm-hmm. and be able to kind of see the potential in people um and to bring purpose into what we do so you know you can look at a, a person who's performing at this level but if you can find that secret sauce the thing that helps them feel in their purpose they can really their potential can be something else i've seen so many people leave an organization where perhaps they're not viewed as being high potential and then they go somewhere else and they flourish and grow so you have to look back and say we didn't give them or that organization didn't give them what they wanted it wasn't necessarily the person so i think we have to be very careful that we have when we have conversations about somebody's potential we we challenge ourselves more and we dig deeper and we don't just look at one set of indices because mm-hmm. that's the struggle a lot of time mm-hmm. leadership is judged on the same bunch of criteria that aren't always the best determinator of the future
0: yeah and you're right like usually people leave organizations because for whatever reason they don't feel seen or heard or or recognized
1: yeah and you know again when I think of my own career you know when I left school in Broughan County Limerick and went off to do my chef's course um you know I didn't go the the traditional route I didn't go to UL or UCC or whatever you know all the the places I could have gone to I, when I look back now in my life, I'd love to have had, but that wasn't a, a strong possibility at the time, both economically, nor was I really aware of what to do and how to do it. Um, but you know, I haven't had less of a career. And I've gone back and, and educated myself and did a master's a couple of years ago and I've 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 trained as a director, etc. So my education has come, but it's could just come in different ways. So I think it's really important we don't judge people about what they how they started off or the economic circumstances. And we, we kinda say, This person has so much to give, you know?
0: And the reality is like when I'm talking to employers about recruitment like 99% of things can be learned. So I think more employers need to hire on potential rather than, you know, academics or, you know, obviously skill set is important, but just to be more open-minded in that respect.
1: I think so. you're so right. Um, you know, that word is often put out there, hire for attitude. Um, and I think it's great. Um, and I love when you can sort of see somebody that has the right get up and go they may not know at all where to start and I've had many many people over the years who've started with us and may not have seen their own potential or wouldn't have for instance known anything about an area but my god they do so well. I have a fantastic two people in my team at the moment Andres is a political science uh, graduate in Copenhagen from Colombia and he's just joined my team. He was my student last year and he's joined my team as my next in line and he's a wonderful young man, you know, but he brings a depth of knowledge of he's part of the world and political science. He isn't somebody who's trained in diversity and inclusion and belonging, yeah. but he has a different perspective. I have Jenny, who's Chinese uh living in Copenhagen, and again doing something really different, who's our student and brings something really different. I've Kat in the u k who has come from a health and safety background. So everybody,
0: and and with people all over the different.
1: world who who bring very different perspectives.
0: Yeah, so true, and so when you think about you and where you're at in your career right now, what does what does success mean to you? Like on a on a personal professional level, like what does that look like? And do you have any anything that you're working on to improve in 2023?
1: Yeah, loads happening. <laughs> <laughs> There's always loads happening in my life. Um, when when we talk about success, I suppose success is you know it's it's that old adage of making a difference for me most definitely just like everybody else i want to be financially successful and i want to make sure that you know for me and my family for sarah and i in our lives i've done things that help to to help us feel secure and that we belong um i think you know the real success is that i've taken something that was you know in in say stage a and brought it to to the next stage I, I like to think that the work I'm doing in diversity, inclusion and belonging is really making a difference. Um and for the organization I work for that, you know, I help to be one of the people who moves the cog and the wheel, so to speak, and moves us forward. In you know, when I think about twenty twenty three and onwards, I have a wonderful role in ISS and I've been given, you know, a great mission um and very supported in that. And we have um publicly uh, I suppose, just before the end of last year, gone to our capital markets and talked about becoming a global company of belonging. And that's my big mission. Mm-hmm. And I see that as a kind of a legacy in the organization. So we're really looking at signature moves like paying living wage all over the world. It may not seem much, but when you do that in countries where they, they're they so far away from that. Um, so paying living wage, helping people to kind of move out of subsistence living, mm. um, and 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 empowering our 360,000 people to to be all that they can be, and then we've also said that we will help to educate and support 100,000 people with qualifications, uh, again over the next number of years. Mm. So that's one of those missions that I see as you know i can be a big part of and wow that's exciting to be included in something like that yeah
0: like it's pretty cool it's for like one initiative that or policy change or whatever it may be could have an impact on that many
1: exactly people exactly and then i'm i'm on a couple of boards um i'm involved in a board in an organization called dial global which is really trying to have a conversation about all the different dimensions of diversity um It's a UK-based, with an amazing founder called Leela McKenzie. And uh, then also I'm supporting um, an organisation called Inclusio here in Ireland, a startup with a fab lady called Sandra Healy. And again, supporting them to try to move forward. I suppose those are kind of the the not-the-day job, but those are things I support. Business in the community. I've been involved in French Chamber and many, many other things a fantastic organization called ICE here in Dublin, which is Inner City Enterprises. It's a charity. And again, Ivan and the team there supporting in the inner city uh, of Dublin entrepreneurs and people come from different parts of the world to try and find entrepreneurship.
0: Wow, so so cool.
1: listen, just like everybody else, you're trying to give something back. Of course, there's, there's,
0: there's a lot of giving back there. Um, And one of my last questions, when you think about the future of DE&I, like, do you think there will always be a place for say people in positions like you or is the goal to do yourself out of a job and that in the future like we won't need to be having these conversations because it will just be the norm like workplaces will be diverse everyone will be treated as they should and like they belong well I think um it's it's it's
1: interesting because There's the crystal ball. And if I had the crystal ball and I could see through it, I suppose the desire would be what you've just talked about that we could, we could be at that. But if you look at the history of organizations and change and culture you know look at from the very beginning military and government you know was the start of organizations that's where and and religion were the start of how organizations the very format of an organization organizational design come from that and you know we're still in fairly broken organizations Mm. and the very fact that you know as you talked about susan about trying to drive gender and drive gender change look at how far it is and how long it's taking to get and you know it'll still be probably a hundred and something years if we continue at the current pace before we get any gender equality in the in the world. So I'm not hopeful that we will see big change quickly. Of course, I'm hopeful that it will happen, but I think, you know, there's a cynic in me that it's going to take time. And then if you look at the other dimensions of diversity, inclusion and belonging, you know, like looking at culture, race, ethnicity, disability. I mean, 1.3 billion people in the world with disability who do not have a, 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 a... a role at the moment, a job. And yet they're the most amazing people. You know, someone with a disability can do my job. There's no reason why they can't. Mm. But yet we tend not to be great at hiring people with disability. Mm -hmm. So that's just one facet. So I think we have a long ways to go. I think the role will look different in the future because Mm -hmm. as organizations, some will progress very quickly um, and some less so. So I think it's going to be different and it'll be about impact and outcomes as well.
0: And my final question, which I like to ask all of our guests, well, not all of our guests, but I'm curious to see what your answer is. Um, if you weren't doing the work that you're doing today and you could have the opportunity to start over again and do something completely different, um, what would it be? Oh, my God. Um, well, I
1: think if I if I really was sort of starting again, you know, I have a huge interest in history and I love anthropology and, and history and, you know, all the books I'm reading at the moment and things I'm into. That's a big, big area of interest. I would probably still end up doing something like I'm doing Do you think? and it would be people and change. But maybe I would have gone through, you know, some learning and, and education in that area. Um, and I guess if I kind of circumnavigate that into the future, I see myself as I maybe, you know, eke out over the next couple or change, um, my, my way of working over the next five years or whatever, 10 years. I'd probably see myself continuing to work in the NGO sector, helping, supporting. I don't see myself ever kind of stopping doing things. But maybe it'll be different and I won't be working full time in, in this type of role, but doing more consultancy yeah. and change, but driving for change.
0: What about politics? I could so see you in politics.
1: <laughs> Listen, I love politics and I'm a geek and I'm, 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 I'm constantly reading and whatever would I think there's many ways to do politics Um yeah. and I'll be really interested to see how the world of politics in Ireland changes over the next couple mm-hmm. of years because we're moving away from the old norms True. Um I think there's very exciting things to come and it'll be interesting to see what it looks like Um, I think I want to be a big part of social change and continue to drive that social change mm-hmm. so yeah maybe there's some there's some ways I can help and support that as well
0: Well, Margaret, thank you so much. Oh my God, that hour absolutely flew. Uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation and there's so many nuggets of wisdom in there for, for all our listeners. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for being an amazing interview, Susan. It was a pleasure. Thank you.